You're listening to Unreasonable Impact, Food Solutions, a three-part advertisement feature series on food sustainability, paid and presented by Barclays and Unreasonable Group, produced by BBC Storyworks Commercial Productions. They say we are what we eat, but how is what we eat changing? While the meat and dairy industries are starting to make big climate and welfare pledges, and leaders in holistic cattle farming are regenerating the land, there is still a gap where the demand for meat and milk through new technologies becomes vital. Turns out there are some innovative foods out there that just might hit the spot. I'm Christiana Musk, and this is Unreasonable Impact Food Solutions. For episode number two, it's the food revolution that's all about evolution. We dive into why we need to change what we eat, We also explore some of the emerging alternatives to traditional meat and dairy, and we look at how these alternatives are upsetting the apple cart, or for our purposes, the milk truck. Once again, we'll be learning from leading food entrepreneurs from the Unreasonable Impact Program, a collaborative partnership between Barclays and Unreasonable that supports high-growth entrepreneurs in creating the jobs of tomorrow and solving some of our most pressing societal challenges. I'll be speaking with Annie Ryu, CEO and founder of The Jackfruit Company. I'll also chat with Fengru Lin, co-founder and CEO of Turtle Tree. But first, to help us get a lay of the land, I'm joined by Ben Teurer, Managing Director in Research at Barclays. Thank you for speaking with me, Ben. Thank you very much. I would love if you could share with us a little bit about your role at Barclays and what you're working on with research right now. I'm a managing director in research and with a sector responsibility is mainly focusing on companies within agribusiness, which includes the entire supply chain, be it protein companies, plant-based, animal-based, but also some of the, the broader grain processors and also cover some food and staples companies down in Brazil and Mexico. We hear a lot over the last few years about animal agriculture in relationship to climate change, and that's a topic we're going to talk about today. How should people think about meat in relation to climate change? Meat obviously requires a lot of resources. That's how you have to think about it. And these resources need to come from somewhere. And there's only a limited amount of space where you can potentially grow crops in a way that it's actually yield efficient. There is no massive cattle farm in the south of France, but there is in the Midwest in the United States or somewhere in the center of Brazil. It's just because you get the space. So the biggest problem, really, you need the land. They're big animals. That brings us to the topic we're going to talk about today. What do you see as the potential for meat alternatives or even cellular agriculture for meeting people's appetite for animal foods? So if we think about the market size and maybe putting that into perspective, it's estimated to be somewhat a one and a half trillion market, the protein market. And of that, if we think about it, plant-based alternatives today represent approximately 1%. There is obviously a growing demand for protein as a source of energy and as a source of food. But there is only a finite type of product that can actually be replaced with plant-based solutions. So there is a need for a secondary solution. There is an industry being built in cell-cultured meat, which not only in my opinion, but even if I talk to the big beef companies, 
they actually think that companies in cell cultured meat have a great future ahead because the population will grow, there will be more demand. You know, there's a lot of benefit to these plant-based meat alternatives because they might have higher fiber or certain nutritional benefits that come from plants. But then ultimately when it comes to, and this is something where people can find these often very confusing, like what's plant-based? What's cell-based? What does cultured mean? But really what the differentiation that the industry is trying to make now is that if you DNA test the cell-based meat, it's meat. And that's really its only ingredient. It's meat. And the same thing with milk. You're just taking the milk cells and making more milk without clearing this additional land. That's something that I think is really hard for people to conceptualize also because it's not at the market yet. So people think, what is it going to taste like? What is it going to look like? Is it even going to be like meat? And I think that's the really surprising thing is that it is actually meat without slaughter. It's meat without slaughter. Now, the biggest advantage you get with cell culture, in my point of view, is the flexibility of what you can create. You can create healthier cell-based animal protein. Think about the cholesterol side effect because of the fat that's in red meat. In cell culture, you can reduce this. You can actually work out the benefits. It requires less processing. It's cleaner. It's simpler. You can actually make a better product. Why should our listeners care about this issue? Why is it relevant to them? In first place, it's relevant because it's going to help you to avoid heat waves and melting Arctis and Antarctis and Antarctica. And it's just going to be better for the environment in general. And if you want to make sure that your following generations have a planet to live on, you should better worry about what you're doing with that planet as a resource. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today. We really appreciate all your wisdom, insight, and contributions to the show. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Christiana, for having us. Annie Ryu, founder and CEO of The Jackfruit Company, is already the largest global distributor of jackfruit. And in December of 2020, launched Jack and Annie's, producing delicious, convenient, whole plant foods while pioneering the largest jackfruit supply chain in the world. And with 70% of jackfruit globally going unused, Jack and Annie's has helped to keep thousands of tons of jackfruit from being wasted. Annie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Annie, tell me, when you were growing up, did you envision yourself starting a natural food company? Definitely not. I was actually planning to be a doctor. I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, hometown of the Mayo Clinic. One third of my whole hometown was employed by the world's top rated medical facility. I absolutely thought I was going to follow that path and become a doctor. I was really stunned, I think, moving out of the bubble that was Rochester to school where Harvard was a place with students from all over the world. And I took a global health class freshman fall and learned that there are millions of people dying every year from things that we have cures for. And that really changed my focus. I really wanted to work in global health and getting the best solutions that already exist to people who don't have access to them today. That was actually what led me to start a health tech company that took me to India for the first time, which is the beginning of the story that I'm living right now. So about how old were you at the time that you went to India? When I first went to India, I was 20 years old. Wow, this is so impressive that you were thinking about these things at age 20. I think 
most college students are thinking about planning their spring break in Cancun or, uh-huh. <laughs> or something oh, thank you. like that here in America. <laughs> so how then, when you were in India, how did this lead to the story you're living now? When I was in India working on this health tech company, I saw a jackfruit on my first day. I had no idea how difficult it could be to solve some of the problems that existed for jackfruit. But once I understood the opportunity, I knew it was something I had to try. Jackfruit's native to India, it's super abundant there. And most of it was going to waste at the time because there were no supply chains to really get it from farms to markets. So this was this amazing crop that was the highest yielding tree crop in the world, you know, thriving wildly in the backyards of all these farming families was basically money growing on trees that they would be able to access if we could build the supply chains, develop the foods, develop the brands to connect them to a market. Since you started working with farmers, has jackfruit production increased? Have you been able to help support the growth of farmers in India? Yes. So we have been working with over 1,500 farming families directly to ensure that they're making a significant amount of added income from this crop that's been growing in their backyards. So of course, they consume as much as they desire. And then we'll buy the rest of the fruit to prepare into our different foods. Previously, when there was no market for jackfruit, it would be very unwise to be farming jackfruit. There was nothing that you'd be able to sell. But these are all farmers who just are farming other crops and happen to have some jackfruit on their lands. And so by working with them, we're also able to help them to make more money from the other crops that were previously their primary source of income. The primary way that we've been doing that is working with them to get their lands organically certified. So far, we have worked with the certifiers and worked with farmers to get over 8,000 acres certified. Annie, why are people seeking meat replacements more now than they have in the past? People are more concerned about the health of their bodies. People are also more concerned about climate change. Eating healthier is going to continue to increase for the foreseeable future. And that's really where there's a lot of attention to how do I eat more plants? Because the way that humans have evolved, we used to eat a lot more plants than we do now. We're eating much more processed foods in general. We're eating a lot more meat than we should be. And so it's consumers being activists with their purchases and saying, I'm going to make a difference with what I'm choosing to buy and what I'm choosing to consume. And I want to do something that's going to reduce the impact that I'm having on climate change. I hear that a lot with people wanting to eat less meat and wanting to eat more plant-based foods in order to help lower their carbon footprint and mitigate their impact on the planet and on animals. But often they'll say, "Ugh, but all these meat replacements are not healthy. I don't feel healthy on these very processed foods. But that's something that you're particularly able to address with jackfruit being a whole plant ingredient. With Jack and Annie's, I've seen you have all the things kids love. And we say kids, but really moms love too, like, you know, (laughs) nuggets, sausage, meatballs, all the fun foods. But what makes them healthier? Jack nuggets and Jack sausages and all of the amazing foods that we're making from jackfruit are first and foremost a plant. And that's how we're able to prepare foods that are a good or excellent source of protein, but also fiber and various different 
vitamins and minerals, we're making foods that are that deliver these nutritional benefits also much lower in fat than their meat counterparts and that aren't a sacrifice on taste and texture because we're starting with a plant that is meaty just the way it grows. The key is the texture, right? Because to try to mimic the texture of meat, it takes quite a lot of engineering. Yes. And what you have with jackfruit, like I've tried your pulled pork product. I mean, it looks and tastes, it's the texture wise. It has that pulled pork feel, but that's just how jackfruit naturally comes. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Jackfruit naturally has this sinuous nature of meat. And so when you think about all of the different foods that are made from meat, If you have that right starting material, then similarly, you can make all those different foods that we know and enjoy that are made from meat. Also, given its health benefits, I would love to see it in school cafeterias where there's often very few healthy options for kids and they try to feed food to kids that they'll actually eat and that they'll enjoy. That would be a big win. Yes, we actually are in conversations with a number of schools. Totally agree. It seems like there's a growing appetite for meat replacements, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Do you see that trend continuing to grow? I do. I do. I know that right now there is concern about has plant-based meat stagnated because there's just not as much growth as there was a year ago. But that doesn't change the fact that This is where we have to be going as a population and as a planet. The meat industry is contributing as much carbon to the environment each year as transportation, right? This is not something where we need advanced, super high technology necessarily to solve the issue. We need the right food development applied to the right plants to make foods that people feel are just as great as meats and that are vastly better for their health and vastly better for the planet. Yeah. When people say the meat industry is unsustainable, it's not just like calling it names. It's because it actually, we cannot sustain the demand for animal sourced foods and we need to find other options in order to get people meats that they enjoy without continuing to increase the number of animals on this planet. Absolutely. Why should the listener care about these alternative meat innovations? This is a way that the consumer can be involved in solutions to some of the biggest problems of our time. Climate change, if we can't get that turned around, we won't have a planet to live on. So all the other problems don't really matter. In terms of innovations, it's something for consumers to be excited about because I think the biggest barrier for consumers to just be switching 100% to these types of foods is that they feel like, oh, well, they, you know, I I feel like I'm missing something when I eat them. And it's just to say, hey, have confidence that as time goes on, you won't be missing anything if you're missing anything right now. Annie, what would you say to your younger self if you were to go back to Annie, who's in medical school and visiting India and trying to do both and sleeping two hours a night? What would be the message to your younger self? (laughs) I mean, looking back on it now, I would tell myself it's all going to be okay. (laughs) Although I was working so many hours, I don't think I would have believed myself if I told myself that. That's what I know now, having made it through so many just extremely difficult times. I think 
the reason I was able to make it through that was, again, just believing in the impact that we could have. And I think that was really the brightest light that that I could have. And while Annie saw the potential of introducing an existing traditional food source to a new market, my next guest is taking a traditional food source and inventing a brand new way of making it. I'm Christiana Musk. You are listening to Unreasonable Impact Food Solutions. Fueled by her love for cheese, Fengru Lin co-founded Turtle Tree, the world's first cell-based milk company. In simple terms, Turtle Tree makes mammalian milk without the mammals. Turtle Tree is pushing the biotechnology innovation envelope, and their goal is to transform one of the world's staple foods, milk. Fengru, welcome. Hi, Christiana. So basically with Turtle Tree, you're making milk without the animal. Is there a simple way that you could describe how you do this? So we have different methods to recreate the milk. One of them is through cell-based methods. So basically, we take a sample of the cow's mammary cells, and we would then grow them to a large number. And then we would put these cells into an environment where they would then secrete milk, and then we would harvest the milk. So we can do this for cow milk, human milk, and different other mammalian milk. We have a second method called precision fermentation. So basically that's using microbial holes. It could be yeast or fungi. When we will then edit the holes that they would perform like a cow. So they would ingest sugar and pump out protein, just like a cow would or just like a human would. Okay, so why do this? Why go through the process of making milk outside of the cow? Well, a lot of people don't realize it, but milk is actually one of the biggest industries in the world, one of the biggest food industries of the world. And the impact is just massive. 37% of global methane emissions come from cattle farming. And this is an area that we see that we can create a large impact on. In recent days where we have a lot of infant nutrition shortages in the US, these are areas that we can potentially help address as well. So you're talking about the formula that recently there's been a scarcity in parents being able to access enough formula. So would your technology be able to create enough infant nutrition milk? Is it more scalable? Some of the first proteins that we are able to target are these better for you proteins, these bioactive proteins that are found in milk. Some of the first products are called lactoferrin. So lactoferrin helps with the gut, helps with the gut-brain axis. And currently, we get lactoferrin from cow milk. It's a very resource-heavy process. So as a result, there is very little lactoferrin on the market. About 5% of all the infant nutrition uh, in the world has lactoferrin in it. So this first protein that we're targeting helps to address the shortage of lactoferrin on the market and also open up the market to adult nutrition and other applications that were previously not able to access these proteins because of its high prices. Let's go back to how you started this company. So (laughs) it's clear like the impact that this can happen at scale, but you were an account manager at Google and this this is where you met your co-founder, Max Rye. What was the impetus behind this for you two? Sure, maybe a little bit of background about myself. Um, I'm Singaporean, born and raised. My background was always in tech, used to work for Salesforce, Google, and it was quite a fanatic period of time. I went up to Vermont for a couple of weeks to learn how to make cheese. And I wanted to replicate this whole process back in Asia. 
So I have some Singapore. You can imagine there's no cows, no milk in Singapore. So I had to go around the region. I went to Indonesia, to Thailand, trying to look for good sources of raw, fresh milk. But in these countries, there are still a lot of problems around contract farming, around hormones and antibiotics that are being pumped into the cows. So the milk quality suffers. You can tell when you can't stretch the mozzarella, you couldn't age the cheese as well. And I just gave up that whole idea. Back then, I was still working for Google. And that was when I met Max. He was going around the world, giving speeches, sharing about different technologies. So after the talk, I went up to him and we started chatting about my challenges around milk. So we, we decided to brainstorm, did a lot of research. We started to bring in some scientists. And in 2019, that was when we filed our first patents. And um, we left. I left my previous company and started this company. Wow, that's so inspiring. And what made you think you could actually do it? Like the dairy market is $800 billion market. So to imagine that you could take a few cells and compete with that, what made you think it was possible? When we spoke to the scientists, when we spoke to the dairy folks, nobody told us we were crazy. In fact, some of the scientists said, I actually thought of this idea. I just never executed on it. We came in with a fresh mind, with a clean slate. We didn't have any preconceived notions of whether or not it was technically possible. Can you talk a little bit about how this process of making milk is more efficient and perhaps better for the environment than the conventional way of producing milk? If you look at how we are producing milk, we're getting these cells into a bioreactor. So a bioreactor is a giant steel tank this process does not involve the cows roaming around the grass, having a lot of gas emissions. So it's actually over 90% more land and water efficient than traditional cattle farming. And more importantly, these processes can be placed in anywhere in the world. As long as we have access to water and electricity, we can put these processes close to where the consumers are. And I imagine milk and cheese, these dairy products need to be fresh. They need to be refrigerated. They need to be shipped around in refrigerated trucks. And so that's a big part of its environmental footprint as well, is maintaining cold chill for the food safety. Is this something that you all have thought about improving on the ability to deliver fresh milk to people faster and in a safer way? Yeah, absolutely. Food security is such a major issue in these parts of the world. I'll quote some examples in the Middle East, some countries like Saudi or uh, the UAE, they're building great farms, massive farms with 200,000 cows in air-conditioned um, environments because they need to feed their people and uh, milk need to be shipped in a cold environment. So if we are able to produce milk in a smaller footprint, these countries, they'll be happy to try to onboard these technologies. Yeah. And those systems, like you mentioned, not only they enclosed air conditioned units, but where does the energy come for that air conditioning is often coming from oil. So it's like the, we have to think about the energy footprint all the way through livestock production or thinking about the carbon footprint. It's all the way from the land that is cleared to make room for the feed. There's the environmental impact of producing that feed and then shipping the feed. When we receive that milk at the grocery store, we're not thinking all the way back from the forest. Thinking about what the world would look like if we no longer need to go through an animal to get this milk. If you DNA test it, it's the same. It's not plant-based. There's no other ingredients in it, right? Like it's, It should be identical. Is that correct? 
having identical milk is the overall goal. And that's what we're aiming for. But we got to remember, milk is a very complex product. There are 2,000 different ingredients in milk. And what a cow consumes, where the cow is, can also affect her milk. If we look at the number of cows globally, it hasn't changed in the past 20 years. But milk yield has increased from, I think, 40 to 60%. And we're doing that because we're pumping more milk from the cows. We're getting them to be bigger. How long more can we push these cows? How much more milk can we get out of these cows as we welcome the next billion people coming onto the planet? I think it's actually quite exciting to imagine what it would look like if we didn't need to treat an animal like a machine. And I actually don't believe that dairy production would completely go away. Like you were saying, you went to Vermont and visited these small farms and learned all these different artisanal cheese-making traditions. I actually don't think that goes away. I think it becomes more highly valued that we treat it like it's more precious. But to be able to meet the increasing commodity demands, it requires a machine-like production process. And that's what we've been slowly doing over the last century or so. In my mind, it's just the evolution of that technology where we no longer need to use the animal. I hope to see this across the board uh, for all kinds of food. Dairy is one. The meat folks are doing a great job, chicken, beef, uh, maybe a dozen or two dozen companies working on cultivated meat at the moment, helping consumers to start to open their eyes and consciousness to how they eat. And this can help pave a path for the cultivated meat industry. So Fengru, tell me, is it just a matter of time before making milk through cellular agriculture replaces conventional dairy farming? Do you think this is really going to happen? If you ask me 10 years ago, would I get into a stranger's car and get him to drive me home? No way. Would I stay in a stranger's house? No way. But fast forward to today, we have things like Uber, Airbnb. I think really we think about it in three main points. First is technologically, is it possible? Culturally, will people accept it? And thirdly, I think to me, there is just simply no other way. So I totally believe that in a couple of years, we will see price parity or even cheaper methods of producing meat than what it is today. When it comes to cultural, I think the younger generation, they are the ones who decide what goes in the fridge. And most of these kids, they want plant-based options. They want options that are not harming the environment or not harming any animals. The generation truly care for the world that they are going to be living in. All these things, all these three different points point to, yes, I think alternative food sources is the future. And does this future include ice cream? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ice cream and yogurts and all the delicious stuff. (laughs) One reason why people don't like meat alternatives is because of how highly processed they can be. So what I love about Annie is that she is elevating a traditional whole plant alternative to meat and really focused on uplifting farming families as she is building the supply chain. In contrast, Fengru is utilizing the most cutting edge technology to really scale the animal sourced foods themselves. It's great to shine a light on the impactful work of the Unreasonable Impact Fellows. To learn more about Turtle Tree, the Jackfruit Company, and the full portfolio of Unreasonable Impact companies, visit unreasonableimpact.com. I'm Christiana Musk. Thanks for listening. Paid and presented by Barclays and Unreasonable Group. Produced by BBC StoryWorks Commercial Productions.